Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for the latest talk on the career of Victorian Detective Chief Inspector Donald Swanson. For those who don't know me, my name is Adam Wood and I'm the author of this biography of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. As we've heard in a previous talk, Donald Swanson became well known to the public with the arrest of railway murderer Percy Lefroy Mapleton in July 1881. What I'd like to do this evening is to talk about the year leading up to this event, discussing seven cases from Swanson's files, ranging from decomposing remains discovered in a barrel and a crazed captain with a sea serpent in a glass jar to high-profile arrest related to the Irish Troubles. At the beginning of 1880, Swanson was 31 years old, a detective inspector who had joined the detective department just three and a half years earlier. At this time, he was in the habit of recording his cases in his arrest book, shown here. The events I'll be describing tonight are logged in this book, although the first case we'll look at wasn't recorded, nor was it reported in any newspaper for reasons which will become apparent. I'll call it the Duchess and the Showgirl. The episode began when the Reverend Coxhead, vicar of St John the Evangelist on London's Charlotte Street, noticed that pages had been torn from the baptismal register and believing it to be an act of malice by the member of a con congregation contacted Scotland Yard, who put the case in the hands of Detector, Detective Inspector Swanson. Realising the leaves had not been stolen for their intrinsic value, Swanson immediately suspected the crime was a fraud believing the leaves to have been stolen to prevent proof of the forgery being discovered. Learning that a copy of an entry relating to an aristocratic name had recently been sent to Mrs Feasdale, solicitors to the Duke of Somerset, Swanson went to the lawyer's offices and demanded to see the pages supplied. The detective learned that Mr Edward St Moore, the 30-year-old nephew of the Duke of Somerset, had married a few months earlier. The bride said, said her name was Lillian Stanhope, the daughter of Thomas Stanhope, a deceased general. The family, sensing she was not who she pretended to be, politely informed her that if she could obtain proof of her identity from someone they knew, they would accept her, but not otherwise. Unable to do so, a few days later, the new Mrs. St. Moore presented Feasdale with a copy of the baptism record with the words, Sir, you refuse to believe my word as a lady. Surely you will not refuse to believe the copy of my baptism register. On examining the copy sometime later, Feasdale noticed that according to the dates upon it, Mrs St Moore had been baptised three months before she'd been born. They contacted St John's and obtained a correct copy, which revealed that the record had in fact been made for the baptism of a three-year-old girl. When accused of the forgery, Mrs St Moore indignantly denied it. Two days later, the leaves were removed from the register at St John's. Swanson began to investigate Mrs St Moore, and what he discovered was an incredible story. Described as a young woman of prepossessing appearance, she had been born Florence Higgins at Northampton on the 21st of December 1853, the illegitimate daughter of Elizabeth Higgins, whose husband John had been a soldier at the 49th Regiment of Foot, but at that time was an in-pensioner at Chelsea Hospital. One William Higgins, wine merchant, was named on the birth certificate. 
Florence gravitated to London, where she remained until early 1871, and then went north to Liverpool, where she found work performing as a showgirl at the Alexandra Theatre, shown here. On leaving the theatre one evening in late April, she met Edward Goddard, an 18-year-old cotton broker's apprentice. She introduced herself as Lydia Foote, the well-known actress, and the couple spent the evening together and probably the night too, for within a few weeks of the meeting, the naive Goddard was told that it made Lydia pregnant with only one course of action open to him. The couple were married on the 9th of July, 1871, at the Holy Trinity Church in Liverpool. The 17-year-old bride now called herself Lillian Eleonora Higgins and stated that her father was an inspector of police. Witnesses included Millicent Mary Jeanette Lytton, known in Liverpool as one of the worst of prostitutes and thieves, and a Mrs Morton, whose arrest was sought for theft. The newlyweds moved to rooms at 20 Harbord Street, but when Goddard's father Henry, a respected architect and magistrate of Lincoln, learned of the marriage, he stopped his son's £100 allowance. And there was little choice for Edward but to return to the family home at 122 High Street, Lincoln. Lillian followed a week later and was found lying on the doorstep apparently senseless, with a small stream of black liquid issuing from both corners of her mouth. Henry Goddard called the Chief Constable of Lincoln and she was taken into custody for attempted suicide. Appearing in front of the magistrates on the 9th of September, she defended herself, stating, Gentlemen, I have been taught the definition of suicide is to take away one's own life. I have never even attempted it. My husband was taken away from me and kept away by his father. And with the view of exciting my husband's sympathy, I bought a penny bottle of ink took some in my mouth, allowed it to ooze out at the sides and pretended to have a fit. Had I drank the whole of the contents of the bottle, it would not have infused me. Therefore, I claim to be discharged at once. She was discharged on the condition that she left Lincoln immediately. She did so having agreed to a weekly allowance from Goddard of one pound. Arriving back in Liverpool, Lillian resumed her previous life as a prostitute, working with her mother at Mrs Higgins and Millie Lytton. The three became known locally as the mother and two daughters. Keen to rid himself of the weekly allowance applied to Lillian, Henry Goddard hired a private detective based in Liverpool named Maguire. Following her to a well-known brothel on the 17th of October 1871, Maguire found her in bed with a man. On entering the bedroom, Maguire addressed her, Well, Mrs Goddard, you seem very comfortable in bed with another man other than your husband. She immediately jumped out of bed and put out the gas lamp, challenging Maguire that he had no evidence. At this, the private detective lit a match and asked the man for his name, receiving the reply, No English, no correspondent for me. At the subsequent divorce hearing, a decree nisi was granted and the marriage was finally dissolved on the 29th of July. 1873. This is the uh, divorce papers held at the National Archives. I think when I viewed them several years ago as the first person since the uh, divorce was put through. Uh, Lillian moved back to London and adopted the name Chesterfield. She became the kept mistress of a solicitor who gave her up after a year because of her wayward lifestyle. 
and then she then became pregnant by an army officer named Curry, who subsequently abandoned her. The child, a girl born on the 16th of May 1877 at 41 Mill Street, was registered on the 4th of July as Ambrose Azina Lillian Chesterfield, with the father's name left blank on the certificate. Returning to the stage, two years later Lillian was appearing in Nelly Armroyd in a performance of Lost in London. On her way to a rehearsal she noticed she was being followed by a gentleman of obvious wealth. She led him along Piccadilly and down to Westminster Bridge, where she ran down the steps as if to commit suicide by throwing herself into the Thames. Her plan worked perfectly. The gentleman, Edward St Moore, ran to stop her and lead her away. Telling him that, he, that she was Lillian Stanhope, daughter of General Thomas Stanhope, deceased, the young woman claimed to be penniless and wished to end her life. St Moore, infatuated with the good-looking young girl, provided lodgings for her and three months later, on the 20th of August 1879, married her at Marylebone Church. She was given away by John Worswick, who was paid 10 shillings for performing the duty. Soon afterwards, Worswick was arrested for forgery on a bank and sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. Lillian's desperate plan had been to take her daughter to St John's Church and have her baptised for a second time, this time under the name Lillian Stanhope, with a father named General Thomas Stanhope, exactly as she described herself. On ordering a copy, she altered the age of the person baptised and then presented the document to Mrs Feasdale. Having obtained the full story and the facts of the crime committed, Swanson applied to the public prosecutor for the necessary address warrant. Lillian had one more trick up her sleeve. Swanson was told the warrant would be issued as soon as Mrs St Moore had given birth to the child she was carrying. It would be a wait of 10 months before it was discovered that she had bribed a doctor to declare she was pregnant. And in the meantime, the Duchess of Somerset, protecting the family name, used her considerable influence to ensure that no prosecution would take place. As we can see in his private memoranda shown here, Swanson was furious, writing, Thus one of the clearest and most disgraceful cases of stealing and forgery was compromised. Mr and Mrs St Moore are now abroad supported by Lord Algernon. There is a probability that this woman will one day become the Duchess of Somerset. In the event Lillian St Moore did not become the Duchess, she died in 1920, 1910 in Wales, receiving a glowing notice in the Times. In Swanson's next case, he was called to investigate the puzzling murder of a woman whose body had been found in strange circumstances in the Metropolitan Police's D Division. Local inspectors King and Lucas, having hit a brick wall with their own investigations, contacted Scotland Yard for assistance and Detective Inspectors George Greenham and Donald Swanson were sent. On their first visit to the scene, they were joined by Howard Vincent, director of the CID. Known facts were few. The butler at 139 Harley Street, John Spindlove, had found a cask in the corner of the middle cellar of the house, positioned immediately below a cistern. Inside were discovered the decomposed remains of a woman, dressed in the remnants of a coarse linen chemise, placed headfirst into the barrel. She was estimated to be between 40 and 50 years of age, with dark brown hair and unusually short front teeth 
described as if sawn, a plaster of Paris cast was taken of them. Dr. Spurgeon, the divisional surgeon of D Division, noticed a curvature of the spine, which in his opinion had been caused by the body being forced into the barrel. He discovered that the whole of the body had been sprinkled with chloride of lime to speed up the decomposition process. On examining the body, Dr. Spurgeon found blood, blood stains on the rib cage on the left side, indicating stab wounds between the fourth and fifth ribs. The heart, not yet fully decomposed, showed no signs of injury, but the lung had completely dissolved and therefore could not be, not, he could not say for sure whether this had been the cause of death. Bloodstains found within the cask could have come from either the wound to the chest or from the victim's nose or mouth after death. <clears throat> the detectives ascertained that the cask had first been noticed some two years earlier, in the autumn of 1878, by Mr Woodroffy, a caretaker of the house. He said he went into the cellar to catch a rat and noticed the barrel, which had bottles on top of it. Woodroffy knocked the barrel with a stick but examined it no further. In July, a plumber named Henry Goatley had undertaken work on the system and had pushed the cask into the corner. It was subsequently hidden from view by the packing cases which Goatley had stood on to reach the system. Progress seemed to be made in the investigation when one William Tinap said he had been employed at the house as a footman in August 1878. On his first visit to the cellar, he had seen the cask and also noticed a bad smell. Tinap had also noticed that a quantity of bricks had been replaced on the cellar floor and was told by the odd job man, John Green, that he had laid them with the request of the butler at that time, Henry Smith. It was clear that the police had to find Henry Smith. He had been butler at the house for 18 months before leaving his position in November 1878 after being found drunk on duty and he was now a soldier in the 3rd East Surrey Regiment. Smith claimed they had never seen the cask and they had dug the hole in order to bury a large amount of stale bread for which he thought he would get in trouble. Denying this, John Green said he had seen no bread and the cook, Mrs. Jury, said there'd never been an accumulation of waste bread in her five years in the house. Things looked ominous for Henry Smith, but with no evidence, no charges could be brought. On the at the inquest on the 14th of June, coroner Miss Dr. Hardwick asked the jury whether they wanted to hear the medical evidence of Dr. Thomas Bond, who had also examined the body. Considering Dr. Bond's testimony given in future cases, it's a disappointment that the jury the jury declined. The inquest was then closed with the verdict of the body of a woman, name unknown, found in the cellar of 139 Harley Street, was the body of a murdered woman, the criminal also unknown. Two days later it was announced that the government were offering a reward of £100 for information which would lead to the, to the conviction of the murderer, but none came. For his part in the investigation, Swanson was given a reward of 25 shillings. Artifacts of the Harley Street mystery were included in the Crime Museum exhibition of a few years ago, including locks of the victim's hair, her stockings and the plaster cast made of her teeth. <clears throat> Excuse me, the photograph shown here appeared in the company in book. Five weeks after the discovery of the remains in Harley Street, 
Swanson was called to recover a large quantity of jewellery which had been stolen from a house in Fitzrovia in the early hours of the 24th of July. No one had seen a shadowy, no one had noticed a shadowy figure stepping through the open gate of 8 Portland Place and slipping in inside the house the man found a suitably quiet spot and secreted himself away for two hours until he was sure the occupants were asleep. Emerging from his hiding place about half past three, the man crept into the dressing room of the lady of the house and re removed a large quantity of jewellery, then leaving as quietly as he had entered. With the Earl and Countess of Bacteve away, it was several days before the theft was noticed. By the time Scotland Yard were called in, the thief had already parted with several of, of the items. Inspector Swanson was assigned to the case and met the Earl and Countess, obtaining a list of the missing items. Recognising the uni uniqueness of many pieces, Swanson decided that the best course of action would be to circulate a list of the stolen jewellery around the pawnbroking network, so no had a notice place in the pawnbroker's gazette. This had the desired effect. Charles Parnacott, a jewellery of 28 New Bond Street, contacted the detective and said he had been approached by a man who wanted to pawn two rings and three pearls. He recognised a diamond and a ruby ring worth £200 as one which he had remounted for the Countess of Bechtieve three months earlier. Swanson then visited several other pawnbrokers in the area. James Moore, an assistant to Thomas Richardson at 11 Upper George Street, told the detective that a man named Robinson had pledged 12 diamonds in a single pole. Robinson had told Richardson that the jewels belonged to his sister who lived in Ireland. A similar story was told to a, to a pawnbroker of Duke Street by George Turner, who pledged three loose diamonds while saying that his sister needed money to settle an account. Swanson went to the Earl of Bechtieve armed with descriptions of George Turner and Robinson, who he suspected of being the same man. The Earl said it sounded like a former butler named Robert Cumming. At 12.30am on the 24th of September, Swanson encountered Robert Cumming on nearby Charlotte Street. When asked how he came to in the possession of a single pearl which was found on his person, the 39-year-old Cumming mumbled something about buying it from a man he didn't know and selling it to another man he also didn't know. Unsurprisingly, Swanson replied these answers were very unsatisfactory. Cumming then said he would tell the truth. He had pledged the pearl and had the duplicate of the ticket in his rooms. Swanson accompanied Cumming to his house, to his home on Weymouth Place, where in a pair of drawers wrapped in tissue paper, the detective discovered four diamond rings and two pieces of a diamond necklace together with the centre cluster. Asked where he got the jewellery from, Cumming replied, it is Lady Bechtieve's jewellery, I committed the offence. Searching the thief, Swanson found two more pawn tickets, one for a single pearl and three small diamonds pledged for £20 and the other for three diamonds pledged for £10. Cumming then removed a further pawn ticket from the lining of his hat. Giving it to Swanson, he explained it related to a diamond ring pledged for £20. He confirmed to Swanson that he would cooperate in any way possible to assist in the recovery of the stolen items and gave the detective a list of four various pawnbrokers where the jewellery might be found. 
It transpired that Cumming had received just £120 for items worth a combined £3,000, the equivalent today of receiving £6,000 for jewellery worth a quarter of a million pounds. He pleaded guilty at the Old Bailey on the 18th of October 1880 and was sentenced to five years penal servitude. With all the stolen jewellery recovered except a bracelet worth £10, the grateful Earl of Beckteve sent a reward of £200 to Swanson. This is a covering letter held in the Swanson family archives. The detective was also later presented with a revolver by the grateful Countess herself. The pistol, a seven-shot chanter, bore the Countess's monogram and the words to Donald Swanson 1882 fixed to the handle. And yes, this photograph was taken in a pub. Remember those? No doubt the Swanson family spent a very enjoyable Christmas following the, mass the massive financial windfall, the equivalent of £10,000 today. The detective started 1881, tracking an English criminal who had committed a series of frauds overseas, but who had returned home in his attempt to escape justice. Scotland Yard had been contacted by George Ballantyne, clerk to a firm in the city, who acted as agents to Goldsboro & Co, a company of wool brokers in Melbourne, Australia. One of the firm's agents, a Yorkshireman named Mr Horsfall, had been introduced some months earlier to a fellow Englishman wearing a Royal Navy uniform and called himself Captain Edgerton Playdell Bouvery Tempest. The officer claimed to be a member of the Tempest family from Yorkshire. His father a clergyman and his uncle Sir Charles Tempest. He was well known in Melbourne, moving in the best society circles and earned the trust of Horsfall by mentioning several Yorkshire families known to him. Tempest showed a file which was supposedly from his brother, Walter Tempest of 2 Hyde Park Place, London, authorising him to draw £200 in order to provide funds for his return to London. Trusting the officer, Horsfall advanced £250 and a letter of exchange was drawn up and signed by both parties. Tempest then sailed from Melbourne on the Cotopaxi, shown here. During the voyage, Tempest borrowed money from the majority of the crew, promising to meet them at the Tavistock Hotel in Covent Garden once the ship had arrived in London. They went, but Tempest was nowhere to be seen. The bills of exchange, meanwhile, had been re received by Horsfall's agents who contacted a trustee named by Captain Tempest. The trustee replied he had no client by that name and a clerk was sent to two Hyde Park Place to speak to Tempest's brother. The door was answered by a Dr Walter Cheadle, who said that nobody by the name of Tempest had ever lived at that address. Shown the bills of exchange, the doctor said he had no knowledge of them but recognised the handwriting as that of his brother, James Cheadle, who had emigrated to Australia some 20 years previously. The matter was placed in Inspector Swanson's hands on the 14th of January and he very soon ascertained that Tempest had taken rooms at the Holborn Viaduct Hotel. Meeting the captain as if by chance, Swanson introduced himself as a Mr Sutherland of Brighton, in London on business, and the pair spent an evening in conversation, during which time Tempest slipped that he knew Mr Horsfall and Mrs Goldsborough of Melbourne. Swanson bade the captain a good evening. The following day he returned with a representative of the city agents and showed the captain the letters of exchange, 
which he denied all knowledge of, exclaiming, They certainly impudent forgeries in my name. Swanson then arrested Tempest and took him to Bow Street Magistrate's Court, where he was searched and found to be carrying forged letters, purporting to be from members of the Tempest family, asking him to return home, thus establishing his identity beyond doubt. At the committal hearing, however, it was ruled that as the offence had taken outside of the magistrate's jurisdiction, no charge could be brought. Tempest was accordingly released and fled the country. It was the latest in a long line of cases where proof had been obtained, but the law did not allow a prosecution. Swanson done his job as a police officer by arresting the offender, but the legal system was not always geared to secure a conviction. Swanson's discreet efficiency had seen him personally chosen to handle the delicate investigations in, involving the Duke of Somerset and the Earl of Bective, and a few weeks after the arrest of Captain Tempest, was handpicked by Superintendent Dolly Williamson to accompany him to Dublin to arrest Michael Davitt, a Fenian arms dealer who was on ticket of leave following his release from Dartmoor Prison in 1877. Davitt had been born in County Mayo in 1846, but emigrated to Lancashire following his family's eviction from their small holding. At the age of 11, he lost an arm in an accident at the cotton mill where he was working, later commenting that as a result, in the years which followed, he was able to gain a good education. At 15, he became interested in Irish history and the current social situation in his native country. And in 1865, joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Two years later, he became full-time organising secretary for the North East and Scotland region, organising arms smuggling to Ireland and took over as chief arms agent in England in 1868. In the 14th of May 1870, Davitt was arrested at Paddington Station by Dr. Chief Inspector George Clark. The arms dealer had been waiting to meet John Wilson, an Englishman from Birmingham, who was travelling into Paddington with two suspicious packages. After both Davitt and Wilson were arrested, the parcels were opened to reveal a total of 50 pistols. Davitt was searched and some £152 was secreted on his person, the equivalent of £7,000 a day. Charged with treason on the 11th of July 1870, Davitt was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment and Wilson seven. Davitt served his sentence at Clerkenwell, Newgate, Millbank and finally Dartmoor prisons. His good behaviour saw him released in 1877 after serving just over seven years of his sentence. He returned to Ireland with other released political prisoners to a hero's welcome and began a lecturing tour of London, Liverpool and Manchester before heading to America to speak on the newly formed Land League, which had Charles Parnell as its president and Davitt as one of the secretaries. On the 3rd of February 1881, Davitt was in Dublin, busy with plans for a forthcoming Land League convention. Around 2pm he left the League's offices and was walking across Carlisle Bridge, shown here, with two colleagues when he was met by Detective Sheridan of the Dublin Police, who said that Detective Inspector John Mallon wished to see him at his office at the Dublin Castle Police Headquarters. On arriving at the office, Davitt was met by Williamson and Swanson, who produced a warrant and arrested the Irishman for breaking his ticket of leave conditions. 
Devitt immediately handed his revolver to Malon. He was allowed a meal before being taken by Swanson and Williamson by Captain Kingsdown, where the trio took a mail steamer to Holyhead, from where they boarded a train to London. A considerable crowd had gathered at Euston Station, anticipating Devitt's arrival. So preferring to avoid this, the detectives alighted instead at Wilsden Junction and changed to a train taking the prison to Broad Street and finally by cab to Bow Street, where they arrived in the early hours of the 4th of February. Davitt's case was immediately heard by Sir James Ingham and he was removed to Millbank Prison to complete his original sentence. It was a small victory for the police in the ongoing fight against the Fenian threat, but much worse was to follow in the years ahead. A month after the arrest of Davitt, Swanson and his wife celebrated the birth of their second son, James. He was registered by his father on the 16th of April, 1881, but not before the detective had again been called away from London to trace a forger and a thief well known to the Metropolitan Police by the name of Walter Selwyn. In 1876, Selwyn had set up an insurance company which invited young men to apply for the position of secretary by enclosing a £50 deposit. When his manager was arrested and sentenced to nine months with hard labour, Selwyn absconded. He then appeared at an office in Vigo Street, running an agency offering seaside apartments for sale. The scam was a simple one. Applicants would view suitable apartments on a map and on making their selection would be asked to make a small fee to reserve the property. Again, after a number of weeks, Selwyn would disappear with the money. Over subsequent months, Selwyn set up fraudulent companies around the city and closed them just as quickly. Until in 1880, he'd become acquainted with a gang of professional thieves who used him to negotiate stolen bonds, thus transferring the risk from themselves to Selwyn. The first transaction concerned £3,000 worth of bonds, which had been stolen between Calais and Paris in 1878. The gang had previously used a German made Oscar, named Oscar Royman to launder their stolen bonds. Finding himself cut out of the deal, the bitter Royman informed the City of London Police, who arrested Selwyn and took him to the Guildhall. Two days after he was released on bail, £1,400 worth of New Zealand bonds were stolen from a vicarage in Devon. Swanson was then given the task of capturing Walter Selwyn. Incidentally, this sketch of Selwyn is from the scrapbook of Frederick Aberline, who would later himself arrest the swindler on a similar offence. Learning that each time the criminal had disappeared, correspondence had been sent to him care of an address on Ditchley and Rising Brighton, shown here, Swanson began to make inquiries in that neighbourhood. But before leaving for Brighton, Swanson liaised with the City of London Police and made arrangements for them to watch a certain house. As suspected, when Selwyn heard of Swanson's inquiries, he fled to the house in question and was held there by the City Police until Swanson arrived to arrest him. Selwyn was arrested, uh, was charged with receiving stolen goods, fraud and forgery. At the Old Bailey on the 2nd of May, he was sentenced to five years imprisonment on the charge of forgery. With Selwyn finally behind bars, Swanson was sent to arrest George Drevar, a captain of the Merchant Navy, Navy who had sent several threatening letters to the Rep Commissioner, Mr H.C. Roffery. Roffery had been responsible for suspending Drevar's licence two years earlier 
after concluding that the stranding and loss of the SS Norfolk in the Cape Verde Islands had been the result of negligence on the part of Drevar, its captain. Drevar held the commissioner personally responsible for his inability to reclaim his logbook, which would show that the accident was not his fault. He claimed that the suspension of his certificate for six months had ruined him. In one of the letters, Gerard called robbery a modern Jesuit, and he said that the desperate remedies were required for desperate wrongs. He demanded recompense, employment or an asylum, and said that if he did not get what he wanted, he would charge his blood and that of another on the nation that had so cruelly wronged him. Captain Drevar was well known to the public, and if Swanson felt a little unsure what to expect when visiting him, it would not have been a surprise. In 1876, Drevar had been captain of the SS Pauling, which was carrying coals for Her Majesty's naval stores in Zanzibar, and on 8th of July was off Cape San Roque on the northeast coast of Brazil, when he observed some black spots on the water and a whitish pillar about 30 feet high above them. Using binoculars, the captain saw a monster sea serpent curled twice around a large sperm whale. This sketch was published alongside his description in several excited newspapers, including the Illustrated London News, who wrote, The head and tail parts, each about 30 foot long, were acting as levers, twisting itself and victim around with great velocity. They sank out of sight every two minutes, coming to the surface still revolving, and the struggles of the whale and two other whales that were near, frantic with excitement, made the sea in their vicinity like a boiling cauldron. This strange occurrence lasted some 15 minutes and finished with the tail portion of the whale being elevated straight in the air, waving backwards and forwards and lashing the water furiously in the last death struggle. Then the whole body disappeared from our view, going down head foremost to the bottom, where no doubt it was gorged at the serpent's leisure and that monster of monsters may have been for many months in a state of coma, digesting the huge mouthful. Allowing for coils around the whale, I think the serpent was about 160 or 170 feet long and 7 or 8 feet in girth. Pauline arrived back in Liverpool on the 16th, 16th of January 1877, having spent a total of 20 months at sea. Drevar went at once to Liverpool Crown Court, a uh, police court rather, where he made a sworn affidavit as to their sightings of the sea serpent. Drevar claimed to have been invited by several scientific societies in order to relate what he'd seen, where he attended such a meeting as unknown. But he subsequently became captain of the SS Norfolk, a London-based vessel. When Swanson visited Drevar and told him he's under arrest, the latter said he might go to court and shoot the rec commissioner on the bench. He admitted writing the letters saying he did so partly because of the insults received from Mr. Rovery and partly due to the fact that he believed he was doing the Almighty's work in making his wonders known. He had then shown the detective a smaller serpent which he claimed he caught by a crew member off South Africa. It was some four or five feet long and of peculiar formation and kept in a glass bottle of spirits. Sea serpents notwithstanding, Dreverard still threatened Mr. Rovery and at the Old Bailey on the 6th of May, he was sentenced to three months imprisonment. But Drevar was far from a crazed sea dog. He had long been interested in lifeboats and other life-preserving craft, 
and had invented a water velocipede which he had patented on the 16th of January 1877. This, the machine, a paddle lifeboat which could be constructed within 10 minutes, consisted of common items such as a wine packing case and a sawn barrel. After exhibiting this in 1882, the following year it's reported that Captain Drabard made several attempts to cross the channel from Dover and his paddle boat and another invention, a boat made out of a tub affixed to a wooden frame acting as a raft. This newspaper illustration from the graphic shows one of the, one of the attempts at crossing the channel. Both vessels were intended as life-saving equipment and Drabard's channel crossing attempts were merely marketing employees which each time resulted in being pulled by the water from various fishing boats. In many of these endeavours, he was assisted by a Mr Ward, whose son Alfred donned another Drevar invention, a waterproof costume. George Drevar eventually emigrated to Australia, where he became a showman at the Royal Aquarium Pleasure Gardens at Sydney, as well as working at the recently opened Centennial Park, where he offered his cask boats for rent to pleasure seekers. On New Year's Day 1890, he was on the shoreline of Centennial Park when he saw a boy in one of his casts capsize and begin to sink. Drevar, some 200 yards away, ran to the water's edge and jumped in. As he reached the boy, both sank. A witness dived in and saved the lad, but Drevar drowned. In some ways, it was an ironic way for the master mariner to meet his end. And one suspects that Donald Swanson looked back on his brief encounter with George Drevar with pleasure. A note in his arrest book um, recorded the captain as Sea Serpent Man. As you can just see there. By the time Drevar had been released from prison following his brief sentence, the name of Inspector Swanson had become known across the country following his arrest of Percy Lefroy Mapleton for the Brighton Railway murder of the 27th of June, 18, June 1881. A subsequent trial and execution of Lefroy would be covered by newspapers for months to come, putting Swanson firmly in the spotlight. His career would go from strength to strength until, as we've heard in another talk, he was appointed superintendent of the CID, a position he held until his retirement in 1903. But as they say, is another story. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please type them in the comments below and I'll pick them up in a moment to respond. Thank you very much.